As you know, during this summer, as BP has been gone, we've had this topic called One Thing, uh, really rifting off of an old movie, City Slickers, where Curly turns to uh, a young man and says, there's really only one thing that's important in life, and the the young man responded to him and said, what's the one thing? And he said, you've got to figure that out. Uh, and we've been asking the different people who've come to share with us this summer just to share with us the one thing that has really been on their hearts. And um, it's really a joy for me this morning to introduce to you my friend Thurman Williams. Thurman is, and his wife Evie are both from the Baltimore area. And uh, having grown up in Maryland myself, we have an immediate connection on that. Um, uh, after Thurman graduated from college uh, and during college and afterwards, a lot of his time earlier in life, he was involved uh, both as a volunteer and on staff with Young Life in the Baltimore area. And during that time, he went to graduate school as well. And uh, after getting his degree, moved into church ministry. You know, for, for uh, the last year, we've been talking as, a, as an elder board about uh, revisioning where we are as Seven Hills Fellowship. And one of the things that we want to do is be a, a church that creates flourishing in Rome, Georgia. Uh, we want to see Rome, Georgia, and all of its communities flourish. And for years, Thurman and Evie were involved in a church in the Baltimore area called New Song Church in an area called Sandtown. And I know few places in the country that a church has sought to really invest itself in the community and to bring flourishing to that community in a significant way. Now, in the last four years, Thurman and Evie have been living in the St. Louis area, again, in a community and an area that deeply, deeply needs reconciliation. Uh, some of you probably saw the PBS special on, uh, on, on the, the Del Mar line. What was that called again? The Del Mar Divide. And that's right in the area of, of uh, Grace and Peace Fellowship, where Thurman is on staff and doing ministry. And so they have been invested literally all their ministry lives in seeing reconciliation brought to individuals and reconciliation and flourishing brought to community. And so when we were praying and thinking about who should we ask to come and pre speak, immediately Thurman came to my mind and to have he and Evie here with us this weekend is just such a joy. So Thurman, please just come and share with us what God's laid on your heart. It's great to have you here, brother. Thanks, brother. Well, good morning. Good morning. There you go. There we go. I'm from a tradition where the congregation talks back to the preacher. So, so it helps me feel more at home when you talk back to me. So thank you um, for that. If you have a Bible or, or a mobile device, turn to 2 Corinthians 12. Our text uh, this morning is 2 Corinthians 12. Verses 7 through 10. When we uh, first agreed to come and, and Bob was sharing with me the, the one thing idea, I immediately thought of this passage and what I've been learning through it and through what's been going on in our lives, uh, particularly the last several years. And so the theme that I want to talk about this morning is the power of weakness, the power of of weakness. And I can think of no better passage that brings that out than this one in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Now, to set the context before I jump in, Paul is talking to a church that's not like this one. It's a church that has problems. 
It's a church where there are a lot of people there questioning his authority as an apostle and really even his ability as an apostle. And, uh, and they're challenging him and they're fond of boasting in their gifts and their abilities and in their spiritual experiences. And so what Paul does is he says, I'm going to boast too. Except what he says towards the end of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians is, I'm going to boast about my weakness. And so in chapter 12, he begins to relate to them uh, a spiritual experience that he shared in. But he does that in order to set up what he really boasts about. And that is the power of weakness. So let's begin with verse 7. And this is Paul really sharing his heart. And he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn in my flesh was given me, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, calamities, and persecutions. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word testifies about itself that it's not just some stale old history book, but it's God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Lord, we pray that You might work in us towards those ends in our time together this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was a part of a, uh, a conference at Duke Divinity School in North Carolina. And uh, people from all over the country that were involved in similar kind of reconciliation ministry in cities that we were, um, but from all different backgrounds, literally from all over the world. And, uh, and each morning, they would set a particular theme um, and so one, one morning the theme was joy, and then the next morning was lament. And then one morning it was hope. And so what we did in the, in the meeting, they said, listen, here's what we want you to do. They had what they call a prayer tree that was there. And what they would have us do is write down on little pieces of paper things that we wanted to pray about for ourselves or for our churches back home around the theme. And so on hope day, they said, okay, this is um, hope day, and we want you to write down things that you're hopeful for, and we're going to pray. And literally all day, they would have people take those things and pray for them, uh, for us. And so on Hope Day, the thing that I wrote down is I, want, I, I wrote something about my wife. I said, I want my wife to be able to walk. And uh, Evie, can you wave your, wave your hand? My wife, Evie, is here, and you see that she's in a wheelchair, and, and that's through a, a condition that we, we just got a diagnosis called functional neurological disorder. But at the time, we didn't know exactly what was happening. And, and what was happening then, this was a few years ago, is two to three days a week, she would wake up and not be able to move her legs. And then the next day might wake up and then be able to move them again. And then the next day, maybe not. And so that was happening at the time, two and three days a week. And so I, I wrote down, my hope is that we would figure out what's going on so my wife would be able to walk 
every day. But then, I, I don't know why, but I got this terrible thought in my mind. I, I guess I don't like being optim- too optimistic. So I thought in my mind, well, what would happen, though, if it didn't get better? And how would we respond if it got worse? And I don't know why on Hope Day I'm starting to think about that, but, but I did. And this passage came to mind. 2 Corinthians 12, and particularly verse 9, after Paul has prayed that this thorn in the flesh, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but this thorn in the flesh be removed, God doesn't remove it. But instead he says to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And I thought to myself in that moment, what if that is God's message to us as well? What if God looks at us and says, you know, what you need most is not a change in your circumstances. But maybe what you need most is a change in what your life is centered upon. And maybe this is how I'm going to bring it, bring it about. And over time, that's, that's actually what's turned out to happen. And so now my wife is in a wheelchair every day. And every day I'm learning particularly about the power of weakness. And I laugh a little bit as I say that because I don't like that. I don't like the idea of being weak. Is there any other amens here? I don't like the idea of not feeling like I have it all together. I don't like the idea, I'll be honest, I don't like the idea of asking for help and having to depend on other people. And I'm not alone in that. And certainly I don't think Paul is alone in that. But that's an issue for us as the church, we like to be strong. We like to appear like we have things together. But the lesson of this passage, and really the whole Bible, is that because Almighty God, because His power and grace is sufficient, meaning that it is enough, because of that, then we can embrace the power of weakness. But what do we learn about that? We're going to learn three areas here in our our text, that it it transforms. And that is our pride, our prayers, and our power. Our pride, our prayers, and our power. First, our pride. Now go to verse 7. Again, Paul talks about this thorn in his flesh. And I know theologians and scholars have debated for centuries, what is Paul talking about? What is this thorn in his flesh? Some speculate maybe it's a a physical ailment that he wants God to take away. Or maybe he's talking about the opponents that are coming against him to try and thwart his ministry. Or maybe he's talking about spiritual attack from the enemy. It could be any of those things, right? Because we get attacked and we feel pain from all those sources. Maybe that's why he doesn't specify what it is. Because we're impacted by all those things. But one thing that Paul is clear about in this passage is why. He has that thorn in the flesh. Did you notice in verse 7, at the beginning of the verse, and then again at the end of the verse, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited. Both at the beginning and then again at the end of verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited. His pride. God, in his wisdom, saw that Paul's pride was a far greater threat to him than that thorn in the flesh. 
and the Lord sought to do something about that. Now, here in the verse, Paul uh, basically implies that it comes from two sources. On the one hand, he says it's a messenger of Satan to harass me. So Satan is one source, and we can believe that, right? The Bible tells us that he's an accuser of the brethren, that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he might devour. Think of the Job story. Do you remember in Job 1, when the Lord is so proud of Job, who lives blamelessly and lives for God, and there's Satan, you can just kind of picture him, yeah, 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 but take away everything from him and see what he does then. And you could almost picture Satan delighting in the fact that God gives him some permission to go and inflict pain in Job's life. Satan has a field day, doesn't he, in Job's life. That's how he is. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. And maybe in your own lives, with some of the things that you're facing right now, the enemy is after you to try and take you out, to distract you, to take you away from what God has called you to do. Well, that's one source, and we say, yeah, amen. We, we believe that, we feel that. But what Paul also implies here is that's not the only source. In fact, he also applies that there's an ultimate source. Not just Satan, but God. It's given to me by God. How in the world can we reconcile that? Well, we, we know as we think of the greater story of scriptures shown most of all in the cross, that oftentimes the things that Satan means for evil, God intends for good and his knowledge and wisdom so that he's not the author of sin at all. But at the same time, he's able to use those things, even sinful things, to accomplish his, to accomplish his purposes. Again, think about Job's life. Do you remember Job's friends? They came to him, and they're observing from the outside. They're sitting with him in the pain, and they're saying, Job, you're not being honest. Because if you're really honest, you would admit that there's something going on in your life you're not telling us about. There's some sin going on, and that's the reason that you're suffering. Why are they saying that? Because there's no place in their worldview, there's no place in their vocabulary for the idea of redemptive suffering. And so they're saying, if you're suffering, it must be because of some kind of sin in your life. Because there's no way God, if you're a righteous person, would have you go through suffering. That's their their idea. But it's not just theirs, is it? Sometimes it's our idea. Bob mentioned uh, the work that that we were at in, in Baltimore, New Song Community Church. The founder, the main founder, was a gentleman named Alan Tibbles. And Alan Tibbles was in a wheelchair, not from birth, but in 1981, Alan Tibbles, youth pastor, he's playing basketball in a gym, and this is way back in the day when they have their church gyms, you have their cement walls, and they just stick the basket up against a cement wall. They don't do that anymore. But he's playing basketball in a gym like that and runs headfirst into the wall, breaks his neck, is a quadriplegic. From that moment in 1981 until he died in 2010. And when he's in the hospital, people would come and they'd pray for him. And some folk would say, listen, if you really believe, then you're going to get up out of that bed. You're going to be able to walk again. And if you don't, it means somehow you don't have enough faith. 
you're not believing right. And what Alan would confide in me is he, what he would say is he would say, God gave me the wheelchair because he's used it in his infinite wisdom to bring about an amazing transformation of a neighborhood. He's used that wheelchair. He's used it to give me access. He's used it to give me a way in with people I never would have had. And he's used it to bring great blessing. Can you believe that? What about us? What about our pride? Are there places for us where our pride is needing to be checked? Where are the places for us where we're tempted to become conceited? Maybe it's in our areas of giftedness or areas of skill or maybe even the way the ministry is going. It's a temptation to say that that's through me and not through God. What are some thorns in your flesh right now? Could it be that Almighty God can use that very thing and bring about deliverance, not just from it, but through it? Could He use that thorn in your flesh to advance the work of the kingdom through your weakness? That's the first thing we see. Secondly, secondly here, he talks not just about his pride, but also his prayer. Paul does a wonderful thing, and that is when he's suffering, when he's hurting, when he's facing this thorn in the flesh, where does he take it? To God. Now, haven't we been tempted, or maybe we've known people that when we're hurting, when things are trouble, we go away from God, right? We say, God, how could you do this to me? After all, that what? I've done for you. But what Paul does is he doesn't take it away from God, he takes it to God. And then here in verse 8, this talks about these three times, I pleaded with the Lord. It's talking about three sustained, intense times of prayer. That idea of pleading here, it's the same idea earlier in the New Testament. When you see people go to Jesus and they plead with him to come and help them, it's the same idea. But you know what's interesting here? is it seems also to say that there's a moment when Paul stopped praying for this because he got his answer from God. And the answer that he got from God that's implied here in verse 9 is no. Paul wanted this thorn in the flesh taken away, not only because it's painful to him, right, but also because he thinks it's hindering his ministry. And God said, no. I'm not going to take it away. Because I want you to know, he says, that my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. My grace is what you need. My grace is sufficient for you. So what Paul received was not God's healing grace. But what, we, what he received was the grace to endure. I was recently given a book by uh, Vanitha Rendell Risner. And the book is called The Scars That Have Shaped Me. How God Meets Us in Our Suffering. And when they gave it to me, I was just intrigued by the back cover. I was blown away. Here's what it says. 21 surgeries by age 13. Years in the hospital. 
verbal, physical bullying from schoolmates, multiple miscarriages as a young wife, the death of a child, a debilitating progressive disease, riveting pain, abandonment, unwanted divorce. And it says here that Venetha begged God for grace that would deliver her. But God offered her something better. His sustaining grace. And there's a story here where she talks about going to a Bible study with other people and she didn't even want, really want to go. But she went and they were taking prayer requests. And you know what she says in the Bible study? She says, I've been praying about some things for decades and God hasn't answered me. How do you respond to that in your small group Bible study? But then here's what she says. She says her, her Bible study leader says something that refocuses my attention. Immediately I know that her words are for me. You never hear anyone in the Bible complaining about the parting of the Red Sea, she said. Everyone loves the grace that delivers us. But the Israelites, like us, were dissatisfied with daily manna. We all complain about the grace that merely sustains us. And she said, I wanted God's grace that delivers. But what God gave me instead was his grace that sustains. And I didn't want that. (laughs) But that's what he gave. And later on, she talks about how it made her life richer as a result. Well, how can you receive that? How can you receive that in prayer? It has a lot to do with our posture in prayer. And what I mean by that is how are we coming to God? What's the address in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. That's the posture. The posture is not that of a disgruntled employee or an entitled employee. The posture of prayer is that of a beloved child when we come to him. Because it holds those two things together. On the one hand, we're coming before a loving and merciful Father. But we're also coming before a sovereign Lord who knows what's best for us and everybody else. And we hold those things together. Now, I remember when our first son, Joshua, who's 16 now, but uh, when he was a baby, I remember taking him to the doctor to get his shots for the first time. And I don't know if they still do this, but when they gave shots, they would stick him in the thigh because that was like the meatiest part of your body. Do they, they still do it that way? Okay. So we, I took him, and we were there in the, in the health center, and he's about to get his shot, and he has no idea what, what's going on. He's happy as can be. And so I'm holding him, and the, the woman that, that we actually know, a woman from our church, the nurse, comes over to him, and she gives him the shot. And, bef- and his eyes jump. The- and, and before he screamed, because he did scream, but before he did, he looks at me. And he couldn't talk yet. But if he could, he would have said, what's wrong with you? How can you do this to me? You're supposed to love me. How can you let this woman stick this needle in my leg? You're my father and you call yourself a pastor? How can you do this to me? And then he screams. And then I'm sitting there and I'm crying too. I've never been through that before. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because that was the first time I didn't know. 
But I let him get the shot. Why? Because I loved him. And the medicine was in his best interest. And even though it was painful in that moment and shortly after that moment, I knew that in the long term it was better for him to receive that. But that's because I was his father. So again, back to prayer. What's our posture before Almighty God? What are the things on your heart that you're pleading with him about? Are you coming to him as a disgruntled employee? Are you coming to him as a beloved child? Paul models for us what that's like. And, and it's cool, actually, as you look at this, because you can see it went through a process, right? As spiritually mature as he is, he went through a process of coming to a realization. He's praying about this to be taken away, and then he realizes it's not going to be. And that it's even for his good that it's not. And then he submits to the Lord. And we get to what he does. He says, I will boast about that. Not just that, okay, fine, I'll put up with it. But I will even embrace it. Because it's from a loving Father and Sovereign Lord. And so not only does this power of weakness impact our pride, it also impacts our prayers. Lastly, we'll see it impacts our power. And I know that's redundant, but I couldn't think of another P word to put there. So power. This is beyond. And so here, there's a great lesson about God's power and our power, isn't it? And you, you kind of see that as you read through all of 1 Corinthians. Even in the first chapter, do you remember it talks about the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and then the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And then it says God takes the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and the weak things of the world to shame the what? The strong. And that's what we see here. So uh, in, verse, in verse 9, again, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? And he says here, my power is made perfect. That means it's brought to completion. It's brought to fulfillment. My power is made perfect in weakness. So the formula there is God's power Plus, our weakness equals enough. Now, the reality is God's power equals enough. But what he loves to do is work through our weakness. Even think about, kids, think about what's your favorite gospel story? How about the feeding of 5,000? Right? You, you like that? Do you remember that? When the disciples, all they have, they have five loaves and two fish and thousands of people. And they say, how in the world can we feed all those people? This isn't enough to feed the disciples. But Jesus says, bring it to me. And then they feed some, and then they have some left over in his hands and through his power. And isn't it interesting, at least in the feeding of 5,000, afterwards it says there's 12 basketfuls, right, of food left over. So it works out each disciple gets to see up close evidence of the power of Jesus Christ as they're picking up those leftovers. And they see that his power plus their weakness is enough. Now, what's, uh, how did Paul apply this? He says it at the, in the other part of verse 9, 
Where am I? Oh, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. And then he says it later again. I'm going to boast about the things that show my weakness. I usually boast about the opposite, right? I don't want to boast about things that show me. You want to hide those things that are weaknesses. But Paul says, I'm going to lift those up. I'm going to boast about them. And he does. As you're reading through uh, all the Corinthians, here's a couple passages. 2 Corinthians 4, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Chapter 6, we're treated as impostors, but yet we're true. As unknown, yet well known. As dying, and behold, we live. As punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, and making many rich. As having nothing and yet possessing everything. And then you go read through 2 Corinthians 11. I'm not going to read it now, but it it talks about all the things that Paul went through. And you read through Acts, you can see it. Shipwreck, stoning, persecution from his own people, persecution from, from other people, on and on. And those are the things that he boasts about. Now, what's his motivation for all of that? Again, the end of verse 9. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. And again at the beginning of verse 10, for the sake of Christ, I'm content or I delight in these weaknesses. In other words, Paul is not motivated to suffer because he likes suffering. Or not because he's trying to build his resume to say, look at me, look at how much I've been through, look at how much I've suffered. He's willing to suffer because it gives him more of Jesus. He's the one who says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Give me Jesus. And you can have all the rest of the things of the world, but give me Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's what I want. Now, I found something out that I, had, I didn't know before. You, you know in verse 9 where it says, um, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, or some translations they say dwell. That's actually, it's alluding to something in the Old Testament. And it's alluding to a couple passages like in Exodus 40 or Numbers 35, I believe, when the, the literal presence of God comes and dwells in the tabernacle, right there among the people, or in the temple, right there among them. And so what Paul is saying here is when I suffer, these thorns in the flesh, they're not just, I'm not just a pincushion of pain for these thorns in the flesh, but I become a tabernacle or a temple of the very presence of God. I get more of him. And so if I get more of him through these thorns in the flesh, poke me, because I want him. What about you? I was just thinking about things that I might consider, and there's a temptation oftentimes to try, when you're in pain, to self-medicate, right? There's some things that we look to to try and take away the pain. And often in our case, those are the very things that end up making it worse and end up destroying us. And so what about for you? 
What are some of the things that you look to to self-medicate, to take away the pain? What do we look to instead of this great power that we see? What, what are you boasting in? Paul here is boasting about the things that show his weakness, about the things that show how much he needs the Savior. And if I'm really honest, a lot of times I'm boasting in a way that might communicate I don't need the Savior. But Paul boasts in the things that show him, that show the world that we need a Savior. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon would tell his, his preaching students is that when people leave, you don't want them leaving saying, oh, what a great preacher that was. He said, when they leave, what you want them saying is what a great Savior we have. This is our power. But you say that's easy for Paul. What about us? He's the super minister, but what about us? What about the things that I'm going through? How am I going to be able to find the power to keep on going and, and find the sustaining grace that you're talking about? Well, we find it by fixing our eyes on the very same one that, Almighty, that, that Paul did. And that's Almighty, the Almighty God's Son, Jesus Christ. Why? You want to talk about pride? He's the one who humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. You want to talk about pleading with God. He's the one who pleaded with God three times in the garden. Let this cup of suffering pass from me, but yet not my will. Let your will be done. You want to talk about weakness. What Paul says later in 2 Corinthians, that he's crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. Fix your eyes on him to crucify our pride, to embolden our prayers, and to point us to where our power is found. Let me end with this. Anybody uh, run track, any track people in here? They're, one of my favorite scenes in track is actually from the Olympics. And uh, this is from Barcelona. I think it's 1992. And, uh, and in that race, one of the teams is Great Britain. And the anchorman, that's the person that runs the fourth in the relay. So the first one goes past the baton, the second, second, third, third to the fourth, and the fourth runs to the finish line. And the fourth one on the Great Britain team was a guy named Derek Redmond. And so the race starts, and, and they go, his team is in the lead first, second, third, and so he gets the baton, and initially he's in the lead. He can probably see the finish line. But then all of a sudden, he apparently tears a hamstring. And so he grabs the back of his leg and he collapses down on the track. And he's crying. Can you imagine? He's trained all this time. His team was in front and now they're going to lose the race. And so he's determined, like athletes often are. He says, you know what? I'm going to get up and I'm going to finish this race. And so he kind of picks himself up and starts to drag his leg down the track, and he's in tears. He's in so much pain. And then finally he just collapses. He can't do it. It's too much pain. He's too weak. But then it's interesting because all of a sudden there's an older man 
that comes down out of the crowd through the stands. And they wouldn't allow this today. They would, security would jump on him. But he walks through the gate and comes right over to where Derek Redman is. And he puts his arm around him and puts Derek's arm around him. And he lifts him up. And the two of them start to go down the track together towards the finish line. Well, you can see there's a security guard, this guy in the green coat, comes over and gets in front of them and says, wait a minute, mister, you can't do that. You're not allowed to be on this track. You've got to leave. And the older guy waves him off. And he says, oh, yes, I can, because this is my son. And the father takes his weak and wounded son and drags him the rest of the way until they cross the finish line. Now, I don't even remember who won the race, but everybody stands up and applauds and cheers, and Visa made a whole commercial out of this. And they stand and applaud and cheer. Why? Because this wounded and weak person, with the strength and power of his almighty father, got up and made it across the finish line. And I say that to say that maybe there's some of you that have come today and you feel like Derek Redmond, you're down on the track. There's a thorn in your flesh that's got you down. It feels like it's too great. And you have an enemy who wants you to stay down there. But will you look, can we look together at our loving and powerful Heavenly Father who will come down and wave off our enemy and say, get out, this is my son. This is my daughter. You've got to leave him alone. And can you put your faith in him to pick you up in your weakness and use his power to drag you across the finish line where he wants you to go? Can we together embrace the power of weakness? Let it crucify our pride. Let it inform our prayers. And let it, through God's Spirit, supply our power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the one that Paul looked to. The one who humbled himself, unlike any other. The one who models what it's like for us to submit in prayer. And frankly, because of that, we have salvation. And Lord, we thank you that through his weakness, he's made powerful and we receive power in our weakness. So, Father, let us leave this place fixing our eyes upon Jesus Christ, the one who can help us to embrace the power of weakness. And Lord, may you use that to be a blessing, to cause the further flourishing of those even outside our walls right here in Rome, Georgia. Make this place a different place because of what you do in the lives of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. 